The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, October 30th, 2022. Rios, don't wait until it's too late. Fire! Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 17th Digest of this second volume, covering Monday, October 24th through Friday, October 28th, 2022. Marvel Saga Monday, Part 9, taking a look at Marvel Saga Issue number nine. If you're listening for the first time, every other digest, I dig into Marvel Saga, the official history of the Marvel Universe, a series that began in 1985, just in time for the modern Marvel's 25th anniversary in 1986. This is my chance to absorb early Marvel Age history without actually reading all of those comics, and then, you know, I can use the connectivity of it all to ask questions, speculate on untold stories, see how continuity has changed since the 80s, and, and you know, I can um, take my Marvel knowledge to uh, another level. Marvel prides itself on being one continuous continuity, so this is a good way to immerse yourself into those first 25 years uh, if you, you know, if you haven't read the Marvel saga, uh, starting in 1961, and I think it only goes up to a certain point, but anyway, you know, they, they do try to also talk about how some of the early history connects to what was going on in the mid eighties. So Marvel saga, number nine, book nine, look to the skies is the title. This is by Peter Sanderson, who is the writer and researcher. The cover is by Keith Pollard and Joe Rubenstein, and you have a whole bunch of blurbs on the cover, uh, including Inside, More X-Men and X-Factor Origins, The Awesome Conclusion to the Angels' Origin, plus Spider-Man's First Battle with Dr. Octopus, and those blurbs are all over, well, they have images on the front cover. You see the angel and you see Spider-Man fighting Dr. Octopus. Uh, More blurbs, plus the origin of the Avengers Wasp, plus the origin of the Vulture, and you see that on the back cover, with Spider-Man versus Vulture, in an homage to the splash page in Amazing Spider-Man number two. Plus the Fantastic Four, Thor, Submariner, and much more. The back cover also has Thor versus Radioactive Man, and the Fantastic Four meeting the Watcher. So information in this issue is pulled from Amazing Spider-Man 2, 3, 241, and Annual 1, Peter Parker Spectacular Spider-Man 51, Fantastic Four 13, 14, 15, and Annual 1, Tales to Astonish 44, Silver Surfer number one for some of the Watcher's origin and Avengers 133. And, you know, if you don't know what the Marvel Saga is, it's basically taking panels, clipping them in, creating some new narration that connects it all together. Uh, It's a highlight reel, right? We're not getting the entirety of these issues, so no doubt that there's information that is probably missing you know, since we're viewing the tapestry of the Marvel Universe through the eyes of Peter Sanderson. So we're really getting the things, the information, the tidbits that is going to be important to a character's continuity, but also connects to the larger Marvel continuity as well. Now, to bring 
this particular point home that the saga is really just touching on highlights. On the inside cover is an intro by Danny Fingeroff, the editor, and he mentions, mentions how they are going to start streamlining the saga instead of touching on every adventure and show panels of art from all those adventures, no matter how small the story is, they're just going to hit the big stuff. And you're going to see the characters, the team-ups, the first appearances, the battles, things that have longevity, things that have an effect on later continuity. Um, And what they're going to do with all the smaller stuff, starting with this issue in particular, is on the inside cover, they're going to have a box called Continuity Corner. And that's where Peter Sanderson can map out where all of these smaller stories take place in between the larger events that the saga is actually giving page time to. So, And I noticed this last time around because the some of the narration in the saga was talking about minor confrontations, but not actually showing any of the artwork. So uh, maybe they felt by this issue number nine, they were like, hmm, maybe we should be a little further along. We only have so many issues that we're going to do this for, you know, and we want to try to get out of at least the first two years of the modern Marvel age, right? Okay, let's dig in here. The first four pages wraps up the Avenging Angel origin with new art this time by Steve Geiger and Al Williamson based on the artwork by Werner Roth and Sam Granger from X-Men 56 from one of the backup tales. Uh, I think that's also Neil Adams' first X-Men issue. Um, Again, I have to ask, why new art? art, you know, maybe it's a way to entice readers to pick up the book, you know, so that it's not all just clip art. So, um, so the origin can picks up from last issue, Angel versus Cyclops, Xavier steps in, he tells Warren that he has a, you know, a nuclear weapon that's out of control. So Warren has to rush up into the atmosphere and into the cold, and that'll negate the nuclear reaction. And then by the end of the adventure, we now have another member of the X-Men, even though they say the third new member, but really Jean Grey is waiting in the wings. And like the saga likes to remind us, these members now make up the new team of X-Factor in the present day of, you know, 1986. Pages 5 through 10 gives us the origin story and first confrontation of the Vulture with Spider-Man. And it's interesting that the saga talks about how Angel, when he met Cyclops and Iceman, was doing his thing in New York City and flying around. And now we have another quote-unquote bird character flying around in New York, but this one is doing it for criminal behavior. So we meet Adrian Toomes, who develops an electromagnetic harness for flight, and it also gives him some strength. And, you know, just like the Puppet Master and some other criminals, Toomes has a business partner named Gregory Bestman, who winds up cheating Toomes. And it just makes me think, you know, if you're in the if you're in business. In the Marvel Universe, just don't be in business with anybody else because it never ends on a good note. So eventually, Spider-Man goes after the Vulture, but he's doing it because he he 
kind of gets the idea that he could be a photographer and and hopefully raise some money for the bills that are piling up with Aunt May. Um, his first encounter, encounter with Vulture doesn't go so well. He decides to upgrade his suit a little bit, um, especially if he's really going to be a secret adventurer. You know, that means more web cartridges on a belt, a place for his camera. And once again, these early appearances of Spider-Man, it's this slow crawl to being an actual hero, you know, since he still is motivated by necessity at this point rather than responsibility. Um, the Vulture origin stuff is pulled from Amazing Spider-Man 241 from 1983, as well as from those early Amazing Spider-Man issues. This is how Parker start, starts to sell pictures to J. Jonah Jameson. He doesn't quite want the credit just yet. And then the second battle with the Vulture, Spider-Man does get the better of him. Um, but the saga doesn't mention that Parker whipped up a device that would negate the Vulture's flying harness. And I do think that goes a long way to showing just how smart he is in these early issues. I mean, he is a high school student, and yet he's a genius, you know, but they didn't quite touch on that. Pages 10 through 12 details the cause behind the great Kree-Skrull War. It's an origin story that has been touched on here and there. It's so funny because they say, oh, we, we don't remember what actually happened that caused this war, but it has been told multiple times. And the whole notion is that the scrolls came to the Kree, who were basically barbarians at the time, and they were sharing their planet with the race known as the Kotati. And there's a contest that's created to see which race the scrolls will trade with. And the Kree decide to create the blue area of the moon, because Earth apparently lays at a hyperspace nexus between the two galaxies of the Kree and the Skrull. The Skrulls wind up choosing the Kotati. That pisses off the Kree. They kill everybody. They steal Skrull technology. And basically, that's how the war begins. Now, this is all information to take us to the next adventure on pages 12 through 18, where the Fantastic Four discover the blue area of the moon. It's kind of wrapped up in a space race-driven adventure and uh, counter to the Fantastic Four going to the moon. We have the Red Ghost and his apes tagging along as well. This is where those apes get powers. And eventually everyone meets the Watcher. And this would be Uatu, although I don't know if he's named just yet in this first adventure. Uh, so the saga gives us the origins of how the race of beings became known as the Watchers after trying to give atomic energy to a race that wasn't ready for it. There's a sequence where the Red Ghost invades the home of the Watcher and is tossed about through time until he's finally kicked out of the complex. And this is similar to what happens to Wolverine, during the final battle on the moon in the blue area uh, during the Dark Phoenix Saga. And Byrne would use many of Kirby's images that you're seeing here uh, for that battle in Uncanny X-Men 137. So it's kind of neat to see the X-Men walking through the same locations that the Fantastic Four are walking through 
in this first adventure. And sometimes it's from a different point of view, but it's clearly the same location if you look at the architecture. So definitely check out Fantastic Four 13 and Uncanny X-Men 137, and you're going to quickly see the comparisons. It's pretty great. And then this adventure wraps up with some prophetic words by the Watcher uh, to the Fantastic Four saying, no matter where you voyage, no matter how far you travel, to whatever reaches of this limitless universe, you will never be alone. Space is your heritage. See that you prove worthy of such a glorious gift. I like that. I really do. And I think it speaks to a lot of what, you know, some writers try to do with the Fantastic Four. Pages 18 through 19, just some quick things here. The Fantastic Four battling Submariner again, but he's under the control of the Puppet Master who's not dead. And again, we are reminded that uh, Namor is still searching for his people in Atlantis at this time. And we get one panel of Thor versus the radioactive man. Pages 20 through 21 is Spider-Man versus the Tinkerer, along with some aliens who are later revealed to be regular henchmen, one of whom will one day be Mysterio. So even though we haven't seen Mysterio yet, uh, this is the saga taking two stories that are years apart and connecting them right away into the narrative. For maybe anyone that doesn't know that um, there was a retcon later uh, for Mysterio to put him into the Spider-Man narrative earlier than his first appearance, which is kind of cool. Pages 21 through 26, we check back in with Ant-Man and the first appearance of Janet Van Dyne. Her father is killed by an alien. Um, Hank Pym finds in her a potential partner, and that's how we get the creation of the Wasp. This story of Ant-Man is also the first time, after a year's worth of adventures, uh, show, to show that Hank had a previous marriage, to a woman named Maria Trevaya. And some of it, I guess, is to give Hank a little bit of a, a tragic backstory, but it also gives him a reason to be infatuated with Janet from the get-go, because apparently she resembles Maria, which is like a really common thing, because Thing from the Fantastic Four, who has a crush on Sue, uh, then puts his crush onto Alicia, because apparently she also looks like Sue. And now we have this, although it's a little creepy because Hank says she looks somewhat like Maria, but she's much younger, not much more than a child. What the heck, Hank and Reed and Professor Xavier and whoever else? Um, I like the artwork in this. It's by Kirby, but with inks by Don Heck. So everything looks a little crisper. And all of this is finally setting the stage for the coming of the Avengers now that all of the players and the original team have finally been shown. On page 26, also on page 26, we have one image of the Thinker and his awesome android as he battles the Fantastic Four. And then we close it all out, pages 27 through 31, with Spider-Man versus Dr. Octopus in his first appearance. He's another scientist creating a harness that allows him to perform certain tasks. And he's an atomic researcher. And the radiation from an accident causes brain damage, giving him 
a little bit of a criminal personality. And, you know, it just made me think of how many of these marvels uh, are all, you know, changed by radiation in one way or another. Spider-Man has his first battle with Doc Ock. He loses, and he has so much humiliation and, and doubt in his powers that he thinks that maybe he should just give up being a superhero, and that's where this particular issue ends. Um, and I did write a note here years later, decades later, when Byrne would write Spider-Man Chapter 1, he tried to lessen how many um, atomic accidents there are in the Marvel Universe by combining the accident that would create Dr. Octopus with the spider bite um, for Spider-Man. So they were all involved in one incident. All of those things happen in one incident. So, um, And I wanted to go back to the title real quick. So the title of this issue, Look to the Skies. We had the angel flying into the atmosphere to freeze a nuclear reaction. We have the vulture, who obviously is a villain that flies through the sky. We have the adventure on the blue area of the moon up in space. We have the new wasp, also a character that flies. So in terms of the narrative of the story or, or maybe a recurring theme, Look to the Skies is a pretty good title. All right, we will return in two more digests with Marvel Saga, issue number 10. TV Tuesday, taking a look at season four of Stranger Things. And, you know, maybe you're a little tired of hearing about Stranger Things. Maybe you don't watch it. I watch it, and I really liked this season. Um, I think I saw online that some people didn't quite like this season, but I went back to the beginning once again, as I do, and I watched season one again, and I watched season two again, I think this is the second time I watched season three, and then I watched season four. And sure, you know, nothing beats the first season, right? The first one was just so good and so creative, and how it's immersed in the 80s, and now to this point in season four, they clearly are evoking everything we know about the 80s. I mean, even, it, it's very, it was very obvious in season one, and now I just feel like they're doing it um, super on purpose, you know, like little nods to Molly Ringwald, obvious nods to Stephen King, etc., etc. Um, the second season was okay. Was okay. It had similar beats, and uh, like season one did, and it had a few odd character choices here and there. The third season was fun because of the mall setting. Um, it had a little bit more of a more humorous tone. Um, Robin was a really good addition for season three. Then we get to season four, which, as I said, has, um, you know, some people divided a little bit. I really liked the stakes in this one, and I liked how this season was built on consequences and the ramifications of the previous seasons and how they tried to bring a lot of those themes into the season, not only with the villain, but with some choices with the actions of certain characters, 
with some secrets that they've been holding on to, and even with some secrets that maybe weren't quite there in the other seasons, but as you look at it, you go, oh, okay, we can do this with this character. We can look at the friendships between these two characters. We can look at the romance between these two characters, the pain of growing up, what it means when everybody spreads out, you know, away from each other. I mean, it just, I don't know. I just really appreciated it. And this season has the best episode of the entire show, and it may even be one of the best episodes of television this year, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. So generally, these are just some some thoughts, you know, as I was watching the season and thinking back on it. Um, really, episode one of the season and that opening flashback sequence to the 70s with, with Papa and a younger L and the massacre at the lab, it really is a roadmap for the, uh, for the events of the season, certainly for the big, the big villain of the season. There are a lot of visual cues in that early flashback that, um, once you start to learn what happens with some of the victims, um, you realize, oh, you know, you can see how it's connected to that first massacre. Um, there's a lot of status quo, we have a lot of the kids in different places in the country. Um, they've grown up. We, we learn a little bit what's going on with Hopper. Um, and everyone seems to have someone new in their life. So we have Argyle, who is Jonathan's new friend out in California. We have Nancy's co-worker at the school paper. We have Max's counselor. We have Eddie, Eddie Munson, the head of the Hellfire Club. And we have Jason who um, Lucas is on a basketball team at this point, and Jason is kind of like the head of the head player of that team. And, and he's the one that everybody likes at the school. So he's one of the cool kids. And that little bit of story structure, plus the way Jason's character is, you know, he's kind of like, he becomes the bully and he becomes the antagonist once the story kicks in. And that is such a Stephen King thing, you know, like the It and Stan. They all have these characters that are super aggressive and they think they're in the right and they become the bully, basically. And um, that's what Jason fell into. And it made me think as I was watching it before the revelation of who Vecna is, I was like, oh, all these characters feel like they could be Vecna or they could be... It almost like they were... Re being really intrusive into the lives of, of the characters that we know because someone is trying to get information from them, even though that's not how it turned out. And I don't even know if that's what the creators intended, but it certainly felt that way. I liked Vecna, and I liked that we had a villain that wasn't just, you know, a random creature. Um, I think I figured out who he was going to be once we were given enough rep information, you know, at some point it just becomes obvious and then the answer is revealed, um, especially when it's connected to that flashback to the 70s. But really watching all three seasons, once you do get the revelation of Vecna and his backstory, you start to go, yeah, that actually makes sense. And I kind of like that they put the little twist on on all of the other big bads with Vecna and it makes sense and it kind of pulls it away from 
maybe just random creatures who are who are attacking um, Hawkins, and it gives a, a a face. It gives a real face to the overarching evil. Now, some people may not like that, and I think that's one of the criticisms. They were like, eh, you know, it didn't need to be the personification of villainy. It just it was okay that they were just creatures and it was okay that it was just evil, but I liked it. Um, there were certainly some episodes that could have been tightened up. Some of these episodes were movie length. <laughs> and, um, you know, as I was listening to the dialogue, mostly when it came from Vecna, I was like, okay, we could probably speed this up. This doesn't have to be this much information, but it's a very popular show. And they, the creators, no doubt were like, look, we have the money for it. We have everybody's attention. We're just going to lay it all out. Um, Eddie Munson is such a great character in the season. Because I was watching it later than everybody else, it finally makes sense why everybody on Twitter was always talking about Eddie Munson, you know? He starts off as kind of, you know, you're very unsure about the character, and then slowly you start to see he's actually good, and he's interesting, and he's funny, and he's a character that you are rooting for throughout this season. And I didn't quite get it at first, but by the end, I was totally in. Um, he's really one of those rare good characters on the show, especially if you compare him to what a shit Billy was in the previous seasons. You know, he also has some great speeches, some that are very thematic with the with the overall tone of the season. Um and it's just, it's really great to see, like, the love that some of the characters have for him. Uh, yeah, he's he's a really great character. I really enjoyed that. Uh, there's also a really good scene when they finally explain to him that what he's experiencing isn't just all, like, in his imagination. Like, it is real that Hawkins is, you know, has some evil things going on. And there's a line where they say, there are some things worse than ghosts. And I swear, I thought Dustin was going to just say the title. I thought he was going to say Stranger Things. You know, I thought they were really going to lay into it, but they didn't. In terms of the characters that we've been following for a while, this is definitely Max's season because some of the characters are a little short shrifted. I mean, we don't really get a lot with Jonathan. We get some stuff with Will and Mike to a degree, not much. Um... You know, the, the whole Hopper uh, story in Russia is uh, feels like a tangent, even though they do wrap it into the larger stuff by the end of the se season. It does feel like it's one of those things that some people, maybe they thought it was given a little too much attention to, um, but I liked it. But in terms of Max and in terms of the Dear Billy episode, wow, that is a fantastic episode of television. I mean, it is it is so good. It was so emotional. I was emotional by the end. You know, um, everybody talking about the Kate Bush song, Running Up the Hill, like, you know, you get it. You, you get a lot of information in this episode about Vecna, or at least about the family um, that is tied in with Vecna, a guest appearance by Robert England, there is a there's a, a, a shootout scene um, that is basically, quote unquote, one take, but it's really good. Like as soon as it started going, I was like, oh, this is a great sequence of television. 
Um, some stuff between Mike and Will, some stuff with Lucas. I mean, it's it just hit me so hard. And again, one of those things where now I understand what all those conversations um, were about on Twitter, because as I said, it just was emotional. From there, you know, you finally get to the last couple episodes of the season. Again, these these super long episodes and there was a delay or they they had a little delay between the season and the last two episodes of the season. Um, I was completely stunned by what actually does happen in the last episode. I mean, I think there was even a point where my brain couldn't process why this was going on. I was like, no, you know, when you watch those other seasons, bad shit happens and there's creatures and there's deaths and, you know, there's weird stuff, but the town always comes out okay, you know, not by the end of the season. And I had a real visceral reaction to it. And I'm all, you know, I, I was left thinking, where do they go from here? Because you could sweep all the other seasons under the rug and there were a lot of secrets, you know, but where do we go from here? So we only have one more season, which is good. The age of the actors is starting to be problematic because they're only in high school yet. they they look older. They sound older. Um, I really want the parents to do something. I thought they were going to do something in this season. There were a couple scenes where they came together, but it didn't go any further than that. Um, I'm also ready for Eleven to not bleed when she uses her powers. I understand it's a visual cue so that we know it's happening, but when she regains her abilities in this season, I wanted them to be more. Like, I want to... Sh- I want to... I want her to be better with them and more in control. And if they are more powerful now, you know, a way to show that she's a little bit more in control is to maybe stop the bleeding. You know, I wanted there to be a moment where she goes to wipe her nose, but there's nothing there. And she realizes, you know, she's more in control. That's a small thing. That's just, you know, just me. So, yeah, really good acting, um, really powerful emotional moments. Um, I think a lot of payoffs to what we've seen before, almost to the point that I feel like whatever they do with the next season, they can almost do anything because other than some, you know, there's still some what if questions like between Nancy and Steve and Jonathan, um, uh, you know, how much do the parents actually know about the students? Uh, will everybody come out of next season alive? I mean, there's a lot of stuff to, to still happen. Um, but I'm, I'm okay with, you know, I I think I'll be okay with whatever they choose because I feel like, like season one, we're almost at a new starting point based on what happened at the end of season four. So I'm a fan. I'm looking forward to it. Let me know what you thought of Stranger Things season number four. Wednesday Comics Wednesday, Part 6, taking a look at the Metamorpho strip. Metamorpho, The Element Man by Neil Gaiman, Mike Allred, 
Laura Allred on colors, and Nate Picos on letters. How cool was that intro music, right? That's the Metamorpho song from Songs and Stories about the Justice League of America from Peter Pan Records in 1975. And other uh, tracks on that album include, you know, it's usually a song and then a story. So Flash, Aquaman, Plastic Man, and Wonder Woman. And the Metamorpho story on that record is Metamorpho versus Fumo the Fire Giant. I really almost was going to play the whole thing because it's so cool, but you can find it on YouTube. So Metamorpho, the Element Man in Wednesday Comics. Metamorpho was created by Bob Haney and Ramona Fraden. I thoroughly enjoyed this strip. It is kooky. It is clever. It knows that it is in this large broadsheet format, which is something I've been talking about with many of these strips. Um, I feel like the artwork and the story are really good reflections of of that metamorpho style of story that Haney and Freyden, um, uh, you know, put together for those early adventures, which I only read a few. It's not like I'm well-versed, but you only have to read a few pages to realize just how kooky they were. And I talked about the Metamorpho story in First Issue Special way back in on the uh, March 13th Digest and how that was by Haney and Freyden and, and just how zany it was and how they were trying to recapture the flavor and all the cast of characters within the Metamorpho strip um, have, you know, peculiarities and they have very strong personalities. And I feel like this strip really brought a lot of that home. Mike Allred's artwork is is perfect for this kind of character and for this kind of story. It evokes Ramona Freyden without actually trying to copy it, right? Because their styles just, uh, you know, they, they, they work. They work together. And I don't know if I if I had read the story without knowing the creative team, I would have known that it was Mike Allred. I would not have known that it was Neil Gaiman. I mean, there's just there really isn't anything in it that speaks to um, maybe what um, you know a certain style that Gaiman has. It's it's really just Neil Gaiman giving over to the story, allowing Mike Allred to do what he does well giving over to the character, giving over to creative ideas. And I did. I really liked this strip. So uh, here are some notes as we go through. The whole thing, the whole story is, if there is a story, um, is that, uh, you know, Simon Stagg uh, wants Metamorpho to go after this long-lost jewel and of course it's in Antarctica, but it's actually in like a pocket of Antarctica that reminds me of like the Savage Land over at Marvel. Um, but along the way, there's, you know, there's there because Metamorpho is kind of like an Indiana Rex Mason, I should say, is kind of like an Indiana Jones character. You know, he's an adventurer, he's a soldier of fortune, as the 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 song said. Um there are traps and there are things that happen. Um, there are some villains along the way, of course. There's some zaniness, of course. 
and they finally get to the the long lost uh, diamond. Turns out that it's all part of like a spaceship, and there's some aliens involved. And then the story gets wrapped up, and everybody goes home. I mean, that's really really all it is. Along the way, though, uh, you get to see some metamorpho story bits, some things that happen, right? Like his relationship with Star Sapphire. You always have Simon Stagg around, you know, the the wealthy tycoon, the wealthy businessman. You never know what he's really up to. He has um, a bodyguard named Java, who is a Neanderthal brought from the past or found, you know, along the way, along one of their many adventures. And Java is in love with Sapphire, but Sapphire is in love with Metamorpho. But Metamorpho is not sure he can be in love with Sapphire because of the way he looks, etc., 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 so all of those bits are here, um, but it's the way that the story is told that's uh, that really is a lot of fun. Uh, we get a roll call in the first strip, which is something that actually they used to do in those old um, 60s comics, and we get a mystery that there is a villain, but it'll be revealed later. One of the characters on the roll call that we don't see just yet is uh, Element Girl, so Metamorpho, the element man, and then there was an element girl. And Neil Gaiman did use her in his Sandman series, so it's nice to see him use her again. Um, page two, we're starting to get into uh, uh, All Red, you know, using this larger format, um, playing around with design. Uh, they arrive in Antarctica, and again, like I said, it reminds me of um, the Savage Land. There's an interesting transition between strip one and strip two, because at the end of strip one, Metamorpho is like, okay, where is this diamond? Is it in South Africa or South America? Is it in Africa? And then it just ends. And I was like, well, that's a weird, weird ending, right? But then it opens strip two with someone saying Antarctica, right? Like, oh, it's in Antarctica. So it's a nice little segue once you when you read it from one strip to the others, to the other. Um, and on this second strip, down at the bottom, we have something that Gaiman uses throughout all of the strips, or most of the strips. There's a promotion, which, you know, just think of like a comic book ad or a promotion for in a comic strip for uh, a toy or a fanzine or a fan club. That's exactly what this is, the Metamorpho Fans of America. And they're talking about, well, they're giving you like a little more information about who Metamorpho is and that there were other metamorphos including element girl known as gerania blackwell algon who was a metamorpho in the roman era a roman centurion and both of those were in the original metamorpho series and then there's two that they're just putting out there that gaiman is creating uh Nigzani, the african metamorpho from 3000 bc and scarif the original alien metamorpho who made the Eye of Ra. Now, the Eye of Ra, usually known as the Orb of Ra, is what turned Rex Mason into metamorpho. I don't know if if DC kept with that origin story, that it actually was like an alien uh, device or something, but uh, Neil Gaiman is throwing it in here. Strip 3, it's another fun page. It's all one image, but it's broken up into three three different movements, three different beats, even though it's all connected where you're watching Metamorpho and company go into the temple. It's really nice. There's another fan club promotion down at the bottom, this time with a letter from 
Paul Levitz. That was cute. And they just basically map out Metamorpho's powers that he can change into 94 elements, the ones that are occurring naturally on Earth, excluding the transuranic elements, whatever that means. My, my chemistry days are, you know, long behind me. Um, page four, we are back to traditional panel structure, uh, but now we're inside the tempo. This is temple. This is where Element Girl shows up. She's working for the CIA, and she also wants to get the diamond, but Star, Sa Star Sapphire also shows up in this strip because she's stowed away with the help of, um, Java, and you can't keep Star Sapphire away from diamonds, away from jewelry, uh, she has a very materialistic personality, uh, but she's she's a lot of fun. And then down at the bottom, you see the shadowy mystery villain, and you see Metamorpho, and Mike Allred is, you know, he draws the eyes of Element Girl and Metamorpho. Um, they're very stark against all that chalky face stuff, right? But then there's also, like, you can see, like, the red veins. I like that effect. But we're going to come back to this shadow villain and this metamorpho image in a little bit. Strip number five, they're all attacked. So Element Man and Element Girl have to work together. And they're attacked by chlorine gas, which then I was like, okay, then the big bad has to be another metamorpho, probably Algon. Um, this page is also hilarious. Because in the middle of the Antarctic, Stag's butler shows up and starts serving lunch. In fact, he has a whole catering crew with chefs and waiters. And Star, Star Sapphire says, Daddy always makes sure his expeditions are well catered. It's pretty hilarious because everybody's taking it in stride. Nobody thinks it's weird. They're they're calling out orders. Uh, yeah, it's just bizarre. Uh, pay, strip six is the first level of traps which um, is full of snakes. And then the whole bottom half of the page is Metamorpho and Element Girl trying to get through this trap, but it's all, it's a puzzle. It's a, it's a game. It's basically shoots and ladders, Metamorpho style. And then you have, um, uh, you know, you're told to, to, to throw some dice and you're told to go through this maze to help them get through the first trap. And it's pretty awesome because that's what strips did, right? Maybe they had a crossword puzzle. Maybe they had a word search. Maybe they had some other kind of puzzle thing. And that's exactly what they're doing here. Page seven gives us a reveal of who the uh, one of the mystery people turns out to be. It is Algon, the, um, the Roman... Uh, metamorpho, the Roman centurion that got turned into a metamorpho. Um, and this is when I realized, oh, at the bottom of strip number, was it four? Yeah, four, when we saw the shadowy person, it wasn't metamorpho that I was looking at. It was Algon. And Mike Allred draws his face slightly different, but it wasn't enough for me to know. And, you know, I went back to the fourth strip, and I was like, oh, right, it's not Metamorpho, but it looks like him, and it's kind of, I don't know, they probably could have done something a little different to, to differentiate that we were actually looking at Metamor um, Algon and not Metamorpho, but he talks in Latin, and it's fun to work out 
his translation. You know, he says, I will reach the star before you. I am a true man of the element. And he says some other things. And apparently we learn how they're actually going to get to the diamond. They have to, uh, there's a giant table full of squares and they have to go in proper order through the squares and they have to become the correct element. Basically, they have to go through the periodic table. And that's exactly what happens on strip eight and nine. It is the periodic table spread across both strips. And Metamorpho and Element Girl have to go through. And, and here's where Gaiman can make some puns, you know, because every element has a symbol, usually one letter or two letters, and they have to not only say this the symbol, but Gaiman has to write it in such a way that it becomes dialogue. For instance, they say, it won't always be this easy. B, B, E for beryllium, right? Or tight squeeze, and the T-I is for titanium, right? So there's like a little dialogue. It, it has to make sense. Really, this is like, you're looking at this and going, my God, like, Allred had to go crazy. He had to draw the periodic table. He has to draw Metamorpho and Element Girl going through the periodic table. So there's almost like 30 images of just those characters just on one strip. And then Gaiman has to kind of make it all make sense while the other people look on. And I don't know, has this ever been done in a Metamorpho comic before? Something crazy like this? Again, I haven't read them all, so maybe. But... These two pages alone are worth the entire strip. And I feel like these two pages, it's going to be hard to beat them in terms of creativity because when you lay them side by side, it's really just great. And because it's such a large format, it really stands out and it works. It works really well. Now, are they actually going in the proper order because it is split up between two pages? No, I'm sure it's not, but who cares? It's fun. Page 10 is where we get the reveal of who the villain is. It's Stag's butler, but it's not his butler. It's an alien that is wearing a skin mask of the butler. And then uh, on strip 11, Metamorpho and Element Girl save the day. Um... The villain says this, this is the second time that Rex has foiled his plans. And I was like, what does that mean? And then 12, uh, there's a big rescue. They leave Antarctica. They, for some reason, they leave the catering crew behind, which was, you know, silly. And the status quo just basically re reverts, right? Um, Java is pining. Rex Mason is pining. Star Sapphire actually stole the diamond. Nobody knows. Uh, Simon Stagg is, is trying to hit on Element Girl. Um, and the alien is, he's you see him in a cocoon, and he says, I promise you the year 1967 will be a year you will never forget. And when I did a little digging, we did see this creature, this alien before in Metamorpho number 17, which was the final issue of that first volume. And apparently that alien creature in a cocoon was behind another villain in that story. And uh, basically, Gaiman is just connecting 
that story with this story. And then down at the bottom, you actually see Metamorpho uh, issue number 18 as if the series was going to continue. Now, the final issue of Metamorpho ended in 1968, so I'm not quite sure what he's saying about the year 1967. Um... Uh, and then we also see like another story, right? Like we're going to see down here, it says, what if we meet the return of Element Dog? And, uh, you know, they're just all teases. And I don't know if there ever really was an Element Dog. I don't know if there are other Easter eggs throughout all the strips that I missed. But it's a nice little wrap up, right? It doesn't need to make sense. It just, it's really about the adventure. And that's what this strip was. So if I continue my ranking, um... I still think Commandy is number one for me, but Metamorpho is a real close second. It's fun, it's silly, it's great use of the format. I love the puzzles. I love the merging of classic Metamorpho characters and ideas wrapped up in a new story. I think Commandy edges out because the art is just beautiful. The coloring is not only beautiful, but important to the story. And there's a mood and there's a general overall feeling in Commandy that won me over. But again, it's close because Commandy is trying to hit, you know, Prince Valiant and all that stuff. And Metamorpho is just trying to be a Sunday funny. And it, and it also works. So they're very close. They're going to be very close in my mind. And then we have Batman and Deadman that were tied, and then Green Lantern and Superman that were tied. Again, nothing nothing terrible yet. You know, these are all still very good. Um, just some I enjoyed more than others. All right, let's wrap up this Wednesday segment with recommendations for the week of October 26, starting with IDW Star Trek number 1, a new series that is connecting all of the various Trek eras of the time. This takes place between the end of Voyager and Nemesis, Star Trek Nemesis. It's Colin Kelly, Jackson Lansing, Ramon Rosanas, featuring Benjamin Sisko on the USS Theseus, along with Data and Beverly Crusher and Ensign Rowe and Spock, I believe, and others. From Abrams, we have The Last Mechanical Monster Graphic Novel by Brian Fees for $24.99. The scientist, uh, who, well, basically, the mechanical monster looks like the mechanical monster from the second Superman Fleischer cartoon. And the story is about the scientist who created that monster finally out of jail and having to navigate, you know, modern society, the 21st century. And what that means and then he strikes up a, a friendship with one of the mechanical monsters and it's all about ambition creativity mortality friendship and legacy from shift we have shift presents the empire trade paperback by mark wade and barry kitson this is collecting the empire series from gorilla comics way back for 25 dollars if you don't know what that story is about it's basically what if dr doom won what if Dr. Doom conquered the Earth, right? And then how does a character like that keep in control when everything around him is trying to, you know, buck against his rules? So that's basically what Empire was about. From Titan, we have The Man Who Fell to Earth hardcover for $29.99, Dan Waters and Dev Pramonic. This is a fully authorized graphic novel adaptation 
of the 1976 movie starring David Bowie, which is based on the classic novel by Walter Tevis. It's about an alien named Thomas Jerome Newton who lands on Earth in search of water to save his dying home planet and how he becomes rich along the way and how he uses that wealth to search for a way to transport water back home. And it's just an adaptation of that story. And then finally, Fantastic Four, the first 60 years hardcover from Titan, exploring the history of Marvel's first family and all of the writers and creators over the 60 years that brought these characters to life, including their villains, $24.99. It's a history picture book, a coffee table book, with articles and sidebars and timelines, everything that I love with those kind of books. So go check that out as well. And there you go. Those are my recommendations for the week of October 26th. This is an NBC News special report. Again, the breaking news just coming from CNBC. Elon Musk is now very much in charge of Twitter. Indeed, the CEO, Parag Agarwal, and the chief financial officer, Ned Siegel, we are told have left the company's San Francisco headquarters and will not be returning. The deal is due to be done by tomorrow. Let's wrap up this digest with a quick email here. This is from Matt Williams uh, about Batman Superman World's Finest. He writes, I consider it to be a monthly dose of pure joy. I was able to pick up several issues of the original World's Finest series during my childhood days of seeking out comics at convenience stores. As a result of that early exposure to those versions of Batman and Superman, I prefer stories in which they are friends. I discussed this with Mark Wade around the time that he wrote Justice League Midsummer's Nightmare with Fabian Nicieza, so I was confident that the friendship would be front and center when he was announced as the writer of this new series. Dan Mora's art with Tamara Bonvillain's colors sealed the deal for me to pick up the title in print, where the colors can seep into the porous paper that DC uses. Dan Mora has jumped to the top of my list of favorite artists. I discovered his art on Once and Future and was thrilled when he was working on Detective while also continuing on Once and Future. He must be a machine to be able to draw two monthly titles while also doing main covers and variant covers for World's Finest, not to mention doing covers for other books as well. He also won my fanboy heart by using the Bat Emblem from the first Tim Burton movie for Batman's costume. I disagree with you about World's Finest number 6, the issue where Bruce and Clark go back in time to find Dick Grayson. While I agree it didn't have the energy of the first story, I liked it as an interlude issue where we get a character moment that my wife and I both loved. It happens when Dick is practicing his trapeze routine when Batman's hands reach out to grab Dick's. 
Then they complete an entire performance across a double-page spread. I love the implication that this is something that this surrogate father and his adopted son have done before. My only disappointment is that Mora didn't draw the issue because I think his take on the Trapeze Act would have flowed better than the snapshot moments that Travis Moore drew. I know the questions brought up by the time travel bugged you, but this is a series in which our heroes needed information from the past, so Kara and Dick simply, it seems, flew into the time stream without the benefit of bubbles, spheres, or cubes to retrieve it. If there is a silver agey element among all of the bronze agey goodness, I would say that this version of time travel is that element. It works for me because this is such a fun book. I wanted to read all of that from Matt because there's some, you know, really good points there. Um, Anytime we get to praise the art of Dan Mora, that's always, you know, welcomed. Um, I really do love this book. It is very bright and vibrant. Um, I said it before, it reminds me of reading comics in the 80s. And if you're someone that, you know, maybe you think comics aren't reflecting what you enjoy out of superhero comics, I think this this is probably going to win you over. I also like what Matt had to say about the time travel stuff, you know, being a silver agey thing. And that's very true when it, when this kind of story that I believe is really evoking Bronze Age and 80s comics um, comes upon things like that, you know, just, you know, time travel for time travel's sake and superheroes who can really do anything and physics don't matter because it's comic books. I mean, that's such a silver age thing. And, um, uh, you know, not having to put parameters on your heroes and what they can do and, and dealing in comic book science. I mean, yeah, that's great. You know, it, it should be that way and we shouldn't have to worry about, oh, you know, how do they do that? Can they do that? So I totally get that element of what Matt is saying. So thank you, Matt. Thank you for that email and for other feedback that I know you've sent, you know. Um, over the many, many years. Um, I have a book club update. Uh, We're going to switch some things around. The next book club episode is going to be with Mr. Chris Beckett, who you have heard on the podcast before uh, on episode 500, also episode 543, the second George Perez celebration episode. And Chris and I decided that uh, Chris, you know, sent me some suggestions. We'll talk about that when we actually do the recording. And the suggestion that won out is Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom Triumph and Torment by Roger Stern, Mike Mignola, and Mark Badger. This is a Marvel graphic novel, a hardcover from 1989. Chris calls it one of his top five favorite superhero stories of all time. And he really enjoys the early, fantastic, pre-Hellboy Mike Mignola artwork. And, you know, Chris and I vibe on so many of um, comics and and creators and writers and stories. You know, we, we grew up in the same era, and I believe Chris started reading comics before I did. Um, but we vibe on many of the same things. So this is a story I've known about, I just never read, and it just felt like a perfect fit for this kind of book book club feel. I'm someone who I really, really loved 
both DC and Marvel's graphic novels of the 80s, the ones that are, I guess they might call them, call them album size, where they almost look square. They're very similar to, probably very similar to what DC is doing with Black Label right now in format. But um, I have not read many of them. I think for Marvel I read, let's see, The Death of Captain Marvel I had. Uh, I also had... The Dazzler graphic novel. I had the Sword, Swords of the Swashbuckler graphic novel. I have read the She-Hulk one. I didn't own it, but I've, I've read that before. I think I've seen the... I've seen a few of them. A couple of my friends had them. Like um, the Daredevil softcover graphic novel. There was uh, the Emperor Doom one I remember looking through. Um, but that's pretty, I guess that's it. And, and I, I've always wanted to read all of them. You know, I just, I love the format. I love that they get, you know, creators on there that maybe aren't the normal creators. Um, for DC, uh, let's see, Hunger Dogs. I remember purchasing that shortly after it had come out. Um, and I don't think I had too many more from DC, Oh, I did have Me and Joe Priest. I might still have that one. And then they were doing science fiction graphic novels, and I got the first one, the Hell on Earth one, by Robert Block, because that had artwork by uh, Keith Giffen, and the writer was uh, Robert Lauren Fleming. So, yeah, these are all things that I would love to dig into at some point. I'm sure reading all these graphic novels is on my to-do list. So to read um, Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom, Triumph and Torment. I think that's going to be fun. And um, yeah, concerning Mike Mignola, pre-Hellboy uh, pre art, um, just going off the top of my head, I certainly remember Cosmic Odyssey, but also the Phantom Stranger miniseries sometime in the late 80s. And I'd have to look where else I was exposed to Mike Mignola artwork before Hellboy, because I'm sure there were other things as well. So really looking forward to that. That will be recorded sometime in December and possibly released in December as well. So if you have read Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom, Triumph and Torment, why don't you go reread it and send me some thoughts and we'll include that in the episode. All right, that's it for this digest. If you have any thoughts on uh, what I talked about in a previous episode about the possible um, new me wanting to start the, uh, a Patreon for the Daily Rios as I, you know, seek uh, seek employment um, and find a way to kind of, you know, help things along the way. Uh, send me an email, peter at thedailyrios.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Go listen to whatever digest that was. That might have been the last digest. Um, so peter at thedailyrios.com, the Daily Rios website, the Daily Rios Instagram, Peter J. Rios is my Twitter. Go and give me some reviews on your favorite podcast catcher, unless I'm not there. Let me know what you listen, where you listen to your podcasts. You can send me some book club recommendations for 2023. We can get uh, some more people on here to gab. And by all means, send me promos for your podcast or your comic project or whatever. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 586 for Sunday, October 30th, 2022. Talk to you soon. Oh,